Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one to you. Uh, please raise your hand and we will get one to you eventually. And uh, please feel free to keep this Bible if you'd like or to pass it on to someone else who doesn't have one. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're turning there, one quick announcement, just a reminder that during second service, during our second hour, we have adult Sunday school and uh, uh, Jeff Newman and Scott Porter are teaching through what the Bible says on how to grow in Christ and the topic coming up is prayer and that may be familiar territory with you, but I would encourage you to come check out that Sunday school class. Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our series called Ecclesia. That is the Greek word that we translate as church in our Bibles. And the subtitle of the series is Features of a Faithful Church. And we have been, within this series, the last few weeks, we've been looking at this broader topic of the keys of the kingdom. What it means that Jesus gives keys to local churches to bind and loose. And this morning, we are focusing in a part two on the Lord's Supper, or communion. So we're going to be looking again, building on last time together, on what it is and why Jesus invented the Lord's Supper. So with that, if you would, I'm going to read our whole text this morning. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 down to verse 34, to set it before us for context, pray, and we'll jump right into the word. So the Apostle Paul is writing in verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we, we see that there is a sobering and serious side of the Lord's Supper. This beautiful emblem of the gospel that you've given to us. It does matter, Lord, what our hearts are doing before your throne. It does matter, Lord, what our relationships are like with one another. And so we pray this morning that you would help us understand all the more the amazing beauty and gospel power of this gift of communion with you and with one another. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, the sermon this morning, as we walk through this long text of scripture, is going to come to us in three parts. Here it is if you're taking notes. Number one, the Lord's Supper, remembering and proclaiming the gospel. Remembering and proclaiming the gospel. And to begin, we will jump right to the middle of our text, looking at verses 23 to 26. From there, then, we'll move on to a lot of the problems and negativity that we read of in the church of Corinth. And so our second point, which is by far the longest point this morning, is the Lord's Supper discerning and unifying the body. And so we will look at verses 17 to 22, and then skip down to 27 to 34, the remainder of the text. And then briefly, we'll close our time together in the third point, the Lord's Supper, dress rehearsal for our future face-to-face feast with God. That's the final point, our dress rehearsal for our future face-to-face feast with God. And so building upon what we looked at last week, and if you weren't here with us or can't remember it, I would encourage you to go listen to it. But point number one, the Lord's Supper, remembering and proclaiming the gospel. Look again with me at verses 23 to 26. The apostle writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, 
let's think more together about what Scripture tells us regarding this uh, ritual, this act that we participate in as a church family every single week. Now, early in this series, we saw in Matthew 16 that Jesus says he will build his church with the gospel of himself. And so Jesus says he's going to build his church. And so how's he going to do that? Matthew 28. Jesus commands us to go build the church by making disciples. And that begins with evangelism and then baptism. But here we're seeing another way that Jesus builds and strengthens his church is through the gospel meal of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a gospel declaration that Jesus Christ is king over every square inch of the universe and over every moment, molecule, and mind of creation. When we break bread and drink the cup together, we are declaring that Jesus Christ is king. The Lord's Supper is a gospel declaration. Last time together, we saw that Scripture showed us the Lord's Supper is the external, objective, corporate sign of the new covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper together, the reason Jesus invented it, among other things, is that it makes the gospel people visible when we sup together. It shows when you take the cup to your lips, it shows that you are re-declaring Jesus is king because this is the supper of the kingdom. But is that all that the supper means? No, there's more details to this gospel supper and we see them here in verses 24 and 25 of our text. G well, Paul is repeating Jesus twice when he says that when we're taking the bread and taking the cup, Jesus says, Paul says, do this in remembrance of me. So not only does when we, when we take the Lord's Supper together, it shows our redeclaration that Jesus is king. It shows that we are in the new covenant. But here we see in 1 Corinthians 11 that it's a remembrance Every time we gather around the table, the meal reminds, the meal remembers. The meal reminds, the meal remembers of Jesus's gospel of the kingdom. It reminds us of his death for our sins and his resurrection from the grave to bring us into his kingdom by faith. That's why I called it a gospel meal. And that's what I'm saying. It's one of the ways that Jesus builds the church with his gospel is that we are rehearsing and reminding the gospel every time we commune together as we commune with Christ. You know, within the bounds of Protestant orthodoxy, there's various debated views of what actually occurs when we eat the bread and drink the cup. And there's debated views on to what degree Jesus is spiritually present, if at all, in the elements, if there is something uniquely spiritually nourishing, if at all, in the elements. The purpose of this message is not to get into the various views within the bounds of orthodoxy. But all views agree with verses 24 and 25 of our text. All biblical Christians agree that when we sup together, it's a meal of remembrance. 
we were remembering Jesus. We were reflecting and looking back and bringing the past gospel realities of the cross and empty tomb of Jesus into the present. And that's why also, look at verse 26. It's not just remembrance that brings past gospel realities into the present. Verse 26 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, note these words, you proclaim. So you just pause there. As often as you eat, as often as you drink, and it's a plural you, as often as you all do this, you proclaim. What do we proclaim? What does the meal preach? The Lord's death until he comes. So it looks at the gospel of Jesus being that penal substitutionary atonement for our sins, but also it proclaims his death, his resurrection, and Jesus's return, which we'll look at at the end of the message. But there's a proclamatory, there is a preaching element of the supper. You proclaim the Lord's death every time that you lift that bread to your lips, you lift that cup to your mouth, you're preaching, you're proclaiming the gospel. So the supper then not only remembers the gospel, the supper preaches and proclaims the gospel. We see the gospel of Jesus made visible, as it were, in the broken bread representing his body broken and the wine-like blood pointing to Christ's blood poured out on the cross. We remember. But because the meal is corporate, now think about this. This builds on last time. When, when I see you eat the supper, when you see me eat the supper, when I see you eat the supper, I am reminded who Jesus is by what you're doing. Because when you take the meal, when you all take the meal, when we see each other all take the meal, we are reminding, remembering, and proclaiming to one another, both to covenanted believers in our midst and unbelieving friends and family, especially our children, our unbelieving children who don't partake of the Lord's Supper because they're not believers. They see and they ask, why are you doing that? Why can't I have that cracker and cup? We are proclaiming, when I see you eat the supper, it proclaims the gospel to all with eyes to see. It visibly preaches, visibly reminds Jesus' atonement for our sins, our justification by faith, his resurrection, and that he's coming back. It is a future element of Jesus' impending return to consummate his kingdom. So that's part of the external objective nature of the supper. Paul writes to correct the many sins and problems and con theological confusions of the church in Corinth, and he centers his teaching on the fact that when they take the supper together, it's a remembering and a proclaiming of the gospel. That's why it's external. When you partake, you are proclaiming to everyone in the room it's objective because it's showing what Jesus has done and his finished work and his glorious resurrection. It shows that Jesus brings us to the table because it's his sinlessness that brings us to the table. 
and his sinlessness imputed to us, not our sinlessness, because we don't have that. If our merit and ability at being sinless was prerequisite to coming to the table, no one could ever come to the table. But it's Jesus' sinless that brings us to the table. And so when you lift and eat the meal, I remember that you are sinless in Christ. You are clothed in Christ. Your sins have been removed from you as far as the east from the west because you have believed and confessed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the meal. So when the meal is lifted and we tend to make it about ourselves, make it about the other people in the room. There's a blood-bought saint. There's a blood-bought saint. There's a blood-bought saint. There is somebody who is waiting and declaring that Jesus is coming back soon to save them and us finally and fully. We are saved. Talking about our final salvation, which is called glorification. That's how the meal is external and objective and corporate. It's a mutual reminding, a mutual remembering, a mutual proclaiming of the good gospel of Jesus. This is one of the ways that Jesus builds and strengthens his church with the gospel. Because I see your faith and it strengthens mine. And I remember Jesus and his gospel and I reapply it to myself as I see you apply it to yourself and it strengthens our faith in Christ. So that's why in this first point is titled, The Lord's Supper, Remembering and Proclaiming the Gospel. Not just to yourself, but to everybody in the room. This then leads to the second point, our longest one, and it's dealing with all of these many sins and horrible problems that this church was plagued with. So point number two, the Lord's Supper, discerning and unifying the body. So the first point, the Lord's Supper serves to remember and proclaim. This point, the Lord's Supper serves to cause discerning and unifying, whatever that means. If you would, look with me at verse 17. I'm going to read the whole passage, but uh, gloss over verses, the verses we just read. Listen to Paul's <laughs> rebuke to this church. But in the following instructions on the Lord's Supper, I do not commend you. Listen to these horrible words that we would hope never be said to us. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. It would have been better for them not to church, not to gather and just stay home because of what they were doing when they came together. 4, verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, underline this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, why? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and 
humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Down to verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Our text shows us that there is a right way and a wrong way to take the Lord's Supper. What is so sobering to my mind is in verse 20, when he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Here's the issue, is they were eating the Lord's Supper from their perspective. They were gathering. They were churching. They were coming together as a church, and then part of their church assembly was taking the Lord's Supper, and they were all convinced they were taking the Lord's Supper, and it took the Apostle Paul to come in and say, yeah, you're doing the motions, but it's meaningless. In fact, the way that you're doing this, you're incurring judgment from God. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So the sad irony is that they were obeying Jesus. They were gathering to take the Lord's Supper in obedience to Christ. They went through the motions, and yet they were so disordered, disordered by willful sin, and so disunited with each other because of that sin, that Paul could say, in effect, yeah, it might seem like you're taking the Lord's Supper, at least to you, but this is not the Lord's Supper to God. And what we see, the connection is, underneath Paul's words, is that when they were gathering to take this so-called Lord's Supper, they were not remembering the gospel, and they were not proclaiming the gospel. They went through the motions, and it was a meaningless gospel. In fact, they, in essence, were preaching a false gospel by how they were taking the Lord's Supper. They were bringing God's judgment upon themselves. And so then this, this begs the question, then, how should we take the Lord's Supper? How do we take the Lord's Supper such that it pleases God and truly is communion with Christ? Or put differently, how are we warned by this text of scripture so that we're not like the Corinthian church, right? That's the question the text begs. Don't be like Corinth. Now, if you've read the book, you, you know how Jerry Springer show this whole book, this whole church is. Have, have, 
Some of you have not heard of the Jerry Springer show. Maybe you shouldn't, probably. Some of you, some of you know what it is all too well. So this church has all manner of unrepentant sin and theological confusion. And so all the theological confusion and all the sins of chapters 1 through 10 and chapters 12 through uh, 16 is what they're bringing to the Lord's table when they assemble here in chapter 11, right? This is not like isolated tweets that Paul's making. The context of the book of Corinthians is that all the things that he's having to write and correct them about, all the sins and divisions and all the false gospel preaching they're doing, it's what they're coming to the Lord's table. It's what they're churching about. And but Paul uniquely highlights one particular sin over all the others in verse 18, which is the dominant theme of this whole book of Corinthians, divisions and factions. These divisions or factions were along socioeconomic lines and displays of personal autonomy from the church. That word autonomy means self-law, by the way. Why would I say that the divisions and factions he's highlighting in chapter 11 are on autonomy from the church rather than submitting to the church and along socioeconomic lines? Well, that's verses 21 and 22. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Pause. So they were taking the Lord's Supper on their own terms, at their own time, and in their own way as they felt like it. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. It wasn't a meal together. That's where I'm getting this idea of a display of autonomy from the church. Rather than showing one cracker and one cup and one body and one faith and one baptism and one spirit, Ephesians 4, and all of those things, they're doing their own thing, whatever is right in their own eyes. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? There again is the autonomy piece. Caring more about themselves than the corporate community. Do you despise the church of God? And then here it is. And humiliate those who have nothing. That's the socioeconomic piece. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So people reading at different times, on their own accord, some of these brothers and sisters were so poor, they didn't have any food to bring to the meal. And others had plenty and were not sharing with the poor. And so the poor were going hungry. They couldn't even eat the Lord's Supper while others had leftovers on their plate is the impression that we get and then still others were grabbing the wine and getting drunk and in the middle of verse 22 we found out that these actions were quote despising the church of god and humiliating those who have nothing and this is so serious that's why verse 29 and 30 say for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. You need to underline that. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So because of these sins, because of the autonomy, drunkenness, humiliation of the poor, because they were bringing all the factions and divisions and all their sins and all these things to the Lord's Supper, when they ate and drank, they were bringing God's judgment on them. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. They were not discerning the body and therefore they were bringing God's judgment upon themselves. So Paul is stating then, why they were sick, dying, and weak, they weren't discerning the body. Their lack of discernment of the body is why Paul could say earlier that they were not truly taking the Lord's Supper. Remember at the beginning? Yeah, when you gather together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you take. Well, why wasn't it the Lord's Supper? Well, because they were despising the church, the people of God. Well, why? They weren't discerning the body. So God was judging them in verse 30. That's that whole judgment piece that he talks about. So um, that's why many of you are weak and ill. He says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we'd not be judged. Well, the context is God's the one who's judging them. So they should have judged themselves so that God would not judge them. Verse 32, but when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. So there's an issue of judgment. That's the weak, ill, and sickness. So the question then becomes for us, if we don't want to be like this church at Corinth, we want to be holy and honor Jesus Christ, what does it mean then to discern the body? Because they were not discerning the body. There's two main interpretations of what it means to discern the body. One interpretation understands discerning the body to mean that the person is not uh, contemplating, thinking about, meditating upon, discerning that the bread and wine are gospel emblems of Jesus Christ. In other words, they're not remembering, they're not doing this in remembrance of Jesus, neither are they proclaiming the gospel of Jesus when they take the elements. So on this view, this first one, on discerning the body, it's, it's exclusively vertical. A me and Jesus, what needs to happen when I take the meal is that I contemplate the gospel, reapply the gospel, and repent of any known sins that I have. And so this view of discerning the body points back to only verses 23 and 26. Do you see them in your Bible? That was the first point that we just looked at together. But the second view, which I hold, is that and more. Let me explain. The other interpretation, as they look at this text, notes how strange it is that Paul only says discerning the body. Where the first view assumes that discerning the body means discerning the bread. But he chooses to say body. And the second view notes how strange it is that he says discerning the body, but doesn't say anything about discerning the blood. So what this view does is this leads to an understanding that on top of the first interpretation, remembering and proclaiming the gospel, the vertical realities pointing to Jesus, I'm thinking of Jesus, when it says discerning the body, it also adds the horizontal element of discerning the body, that is the body of Christ, 
that is the gathered church. So the second view has vertical and horizontal dimensions that when you discern the body, you're thinking about Jesus in heaven and Jesus on earth, his body, the church. How can this view be defended? It's defended because he tells them you're despising the church and how you're taking the gospel or taking the, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper. In other words, Paul's only pointing back not only to verses 23 to 26, Paul is rehearsing that discerning the body includes everything that he says in this context. That they should be thinking about how they're sinning against each other. That they're sinning against the body of Christ and therefore sinning against Christ. They're mistreating the body of Christ and therefore mistreating Christ himself. Their divisions and factions were non-gospel realities. They weren't discerning all of Jesus' gospel work to unify them in the gospel. So they're living contrary to the very things Jesus accomplished and gave them in the gospel. They're functionally proclaiming a false gospel because they're not discerning the body of Christ. That is, Jesus in heaven and his blood-bought saints on earth. Put differently, they were despising the church of God by not discerning the body of God, the people of God, the church. So it's a both and. Discerning the body is everything he says in context, not just part of the context. So the first interpretation of discerning the body focuses only on a vertical understanding that I'm not remembering the gospel the second position focuses on the vertical remembering of the gospel and gospel-shaped relationships and interactions with each other because Jesus' blood has purchased all of us, washed us all of our sins, broken down all the barriers of division, including the socioeconomic divisions that we read of, and more. So I hold to the second position that discerning the body is not only verses 23 and 26, it's verses 17 to 34, discerning Christ's body seen among us. So what's Paul's antidote then? How do we discern the body from a horizontal perspective? I think that's why he says, verse 28, let a person examine himself, then eat. Verse 28, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Examine, then eat, wait. So examine, wait, eat. So first, in verse 28, self-examination, that absolutely means self-examination. Let a person examine himself, not examine other people, there is, there is the introspective reality related to the Lord's Supper. Self-examination includes reflecting, reaffirming, and remembering one's personal faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remembering and proclaiming. Not only am I believing the gospel that I believed, but I'm recognizing that I'm proclaiming the gospel for all of you to see. And self-examination necessarily includes repenting of any sin you're holding on to. We'll see this in a moment, but the whole effect of self-examination, let a person examine himself, 
is that it would cause them to think, well, I'm, I'm being a divisive, factious person. Or I shouldn't be drunk right now. Or any of those types of things that we read of in the text. So if, if Paul's saying you've got to pause before you eat and think about what you're doing and think about what you're doing, how it also affects the whole body of Christ. So second then, self-examination also includes reflecting on the health and unity of the new covenant people, the church, especially against divisions and factions. That's why Paul says, wait for one another. They're eating at different times. We know in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and more in Corinthians that some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. They had all these different teams and factions. It's not beyond reason that they may have been taking their little factious meals together at different times because they were so divided. That's speculation on my part. But Paul nonetheless says, wait for one another. Self-examination is not just personal examination. It also includes how my relation to the rest of the body is. So it's not just my sinlessness or lack thereof with Jesus, so to speak, but it's the corporateness. The church gathers and communes as one body, one bread, one cup, one spirit. So no factions based on favoritism of people. No partiality to people. No prideful divisions along socioeconomic lines. No drunkenness. No willful, unrepentant sin that they were bringing to the table. So self-examination, as I said a few moments ago, would lead the drunk person to repent of their drunkenness. Self-examination is intended to lead the divisive and factious person to repent of their factiousness. And those with means would repent of their humiliating those without means, and it would cause all of them to say, am I despising the church and how I'm taking the supper? So there's a massive corporate dimension to partaking the Lord's Supper together. And really, the effect of Paul's words, examine, then eat, presupposes the Corinthian church renounces and repents of all their many sins and reconciles as the body that they are. But I emphasized last time, Paul's solution in 1 Corinthians 11 is not stop taking the Lord's Supper until everyone repents of their respective sins, but to correct how they took the Lord's Supper. The whole point, 1 Corinthians 11 is in our Bible, is not to not take the Lord's Supper. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 11 is how to take the Lord's Supper rightly. Examine, then eat. So when we saw from Scripture last time that the Supper is the external, objective, corporate sign of the New Covenant, we see another element now of what it means for the sign of the Supper to be corporate. It's discerning the body of Christ, both seated on His throne in heaven and us with one another. Discern the body, examine, then eat. And it absolutely includes reconciling broken relationships, divi or, uh, divisive and factious relationships, to lay down the arms and feuds and vengeances and more that plague this church, and it's the same for us. So the answer is then, how should we partake? Self-examine. 
How should we partake? Self-examine, then eat. But now another set of questions is this. Who should eat the supper and when should we eat the supper? So still this first point, we're shifting gears. If you want to treat it as another point, feel free in your notes. We're asking new questions now. Who should eat and when? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 and verse 20. Know what he says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. We've dealt with their sins, but now I want to see, look at what Paul's saying. The detail of verse 18. When you come together as a church, and again in verse 20, when you come together. So the question is fairly, well, the question's simple, and I think the answer is simple. Who eats the supper? The church does, right? When you come together as a church to eat the supper. And who is the church? Well, the norm of Scripture is that baptized believers are the church. Of course, go back and listen to the message. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. However, it is the first command of Christ after you're saved to get baptized. So search in all of Scripture, and you'll see every instance, especially in the book of Acts. What does Peter say in Acts 2? What should we do, Peter, to be saved? Repent, every one of you, and be baptized. A profession and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ always leads to baptism. That's why I said, who is the church? Baptize believers. You are still a Christian if you're a believer and not baptized. But the norm and obedience to Christ, the public entry sign into the new covenant, our public profession of faith is baptism. So when do we eat the Lord's Supper? It says, when you come together as a church. When you come together, two times, verse 18 and verse 19. So I need to point out something here similar to what I pointed out with baptism because I think this is going to be new for our church family. The norm and regular pattern of Scripture on into church history is that Christians take communion when they gather as a church in part to show their unity in Christ through the one bread and one cup and to show that they're still in the new covenant together. But there is one place in Scripture I think that we do see the church taking communion in homes rather than the whole assembly. And that's Acts 2.42. The church is just born. It's suddenly into a mega church. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people get saved. They gathered in the temple by day for the apostles' preaching. And then it says in Acts 2.42 and following to the end of the chapter, they gathered in homes for the breaking of bread. And I understand that, and many interpreters do, to mean that they were taking a meal together, which included the Lord's Supper. So there is a place to see in Scripture, similar to the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, when he was in his chariot and went and got baptized. But here's my argument. The exception does not create the rule. Just the exception shows there are unique but rare circumstances where regular norms are interrupted by valid but irregular practice. That was a complicated sentence. Let me say that again. 
the exceptions in the Bible just shows there's unique but rare times, rare times, when regular norms are interrupted by valid but irregular practices. So it was not sin for Philip to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch outside the church, and it was not sin in Acts 2.42 for these home groups, missional communities, whatever you want to call them, were taking in Acts 2.42, but it was an irregular practice. Irregular in the sense that when, as Scripture goes on, as the book of Acts goes on, we see, for example, in Acts 20, verse 7, that now the church is assembling at the end of the book of Acts to take the Lord's Supper together. We see something here in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. I am arguing that the norm and regular pattern of Scripture is that the church regularly, if not weekly, assembles to take the Lord's Supper. But now with last week and this week, I hope you see why. It shows that we are the new covenant community. It shows that we belong to one another. It shows that we're declaring that Christ is king and more. It shows our union with each other, our unity in Jesus, which the church in Corinth was functionally denying. So the Lord's Supper then, as the sign of the new covenant, makes the people of the new covenant visible when we partake together. That's why partaking together is so important. And part of this visibility is our evangelistic proclaiming of the gospel to unbelieving friends and family in our midst. So it is abnormal and it is irregular to take the supper outside the context of the covenanted community. I do not think it's sin. There's a biblical precedent. It's just irregular. So for example... In the future, if there was ever a time that you took the Lord's Supper apart from this body that you're covenanted with, whether you're at a retreat, whether you're at home, even if you travel to another gospel church, if you take the Lord's Supper outside of the brothers and sisters that you're responsible for and covenanted to, on the one hand, you should be rejoicing in the Lord. And on the other hand, there should be an element of sorrow in your heart that you are absent from and missing your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of the external corporate nature, the non-privatized nature. I had this picture in my mind. Could you imagine a Thanksgiving meal where everybody sits down at this feast as right there and then someone prays for the food and then everyone eats Thanksgiving quietly turns down the lights like this, just eating their supper. I think that Thanksgiving is that we're laughing and we're talking and we're passing the food and it's a feast together. That is more of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be like, not the privatized, introspective, subjective meal that I argued against last time. So who takes the supper? The gathered church does. When does the church take the supper? When the church gathers. That's the norm and regular pattern of scripture. It's one of the reasons why when we were on lockdown early on, an email came out from the elders uh, it, it allowing, authorizing everybody who was at home to partake of the Lord's Supper in their, home, in their homes because we weren't a gathered community. So there are times, there are places to take the Lord's Supper, we just need to treat the Lord's Supper the way Jesus intends us to treat the Lord's Supper and use the Lord's Supper for the way that Jesus wants us to use the Lord's Supper. 
external objective preaching of the gospel. But friends, there's one final piece. There's one final piece of all these details and the theology of fitting the Bible together, what's going on. There's one final piece I want us to look at as we finish our time thinking about the Lord's Supper together. Point number three, what's the Lord's Supper? It's dress rehearsal for our future face-to-face feast with Christ. The Lord's Supper, every time we partake, is dress rehearsal for our future face-to-face feast with Christ. And for this, I'm going to turn to Luke 22, verses 14 to 16 in a few moments, if you want to meet me there. Step back, shift gears, let's think. It was eating in disobedience to God that plunged the world into ruin. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they forfeited their communion and fellowship with God. But as we continue to read scripture, we find out later that when God calls the man Abraham, there's this strange scene in which Abraham goes and he eats bread and drinks wine with this priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek, a meal with the priest of the Most High God. And later still under Moses, when God was making the Mosaic Covenant with Moses to the nation of Israel, listen to Exodus 24 verses 6 through 11. Moses took half the blood, he put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw the blood on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar? What Jesus says at the Lord's Supper. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up on the mountain. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Adam ate and plunges into ruin. Abraham, as God begins to bring his gospel plans to fruition, Abraham eats bread and drinks wine with Melchizedek. God calls Moses and the 70 up to the mountain. They see God and he eats and drinks with them. The Mosaic covenant was ratified with a meal with God. And in Luke 22, verses 14 to 16, we touched on these last time. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, and Jesus said to them, and here's his words, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Here's how scripture fits together. Here is the beauty of it. The triune God wants to have a meal with you.
all the theology, all of his important things, all the gospel proclamation, yes and amen, but it's all to an end. The end is this, that we would be sitting down face to face with Jesus Christ himself, all the church gathered in her splendor to enjoy a meal with God as he smiles back at us. God intends in his gospel to reconcile us to himself so that we can feast with him forever. That's what's underneath and undergirding and, and, and housing all that we're seeing in all the details. We can't lose sight of the fact that, that when we eat together, we're rehearsing for that day when we will eat together with Christ himself. That's part of the beauty and glory of the meal. That's why I say the Lord's Supper is also finally and fully a dress rehearsal for our future face-to-face -face feast with Christ. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me in verse 9, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Of the many things that the supper points to and reveals, the textured, tangible glory of the elements of the new covenant, the gospel on display, we must always remember that we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes and then rehearsing for that face-to-face -face meal, remembering all the work that he did to bring you personally and us corporately from death to life and darkness to light because he loves you and poured out his grace upon you to bring us to himself. God... Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, wants to eat with us face to face and remember and declare his gospel together. And so when we partake in a few moments, that's what we'll be doing. Remembering, proclaiming, unifying, discerning the body, examining, eating, and rehearsing. That's all that happens and more when we take cracker and cup. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your glorious grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you care about the Lord's Supper. We thank you that you teach us what the Lord's Supper is because it's your invention. And yet we see that all along from the garden to the new, the new city garden in Revelation 21 and 22, your intent is to be with us face to face, communing with you, feasting in glory. So until then, Lord, we long for you to return. We agree with the end of Scripture. Come, Lord Jesus. But until then, Lord, let us be found faithful, not factious. 
Let us be found dedicated to one another, helping each other, no one follow Jesus and not being divisive. Let us wait for one another, Lord, and examine and then eat, and let us rejoice in the beauty and responsibility that we have for one another in your gospel. So, Lord, lead us in these things by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, please stand for this song, and one of the elders will come up in a moment to lead us to the Lord's table. Let's sing in response to God's word that we've heard and, and rejoice in how we are united with Christ through, through the blood of Christ uh, as we sing before the throne of God above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me my name is graven on his hands my name is written on his heart i know that while in any stands no tongue can beat me Tongue can bid me let's depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the justice satisfied to look on 